in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. No one has seen God ever, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that one has made him known. These are some of the most famous words from the introduction to John's gospel. If we're being honest, though, when we hear those words, they might sound pretty, but they're also kind of confusing. The word was with God, the word was God. What's all of that about? They're kind of cryptic, pretty dense, so let's just unpack these words a little bit. John's gospel, the very first line of John's gospel, begins with a verse that draws on the very first line of the biblical story. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the very first line of the Bible. Well, here in John's gospel, that creation story gets a little different twist. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, at the very beginning of things, when the heavens and the earth came into existence, the Word was just there. God, the Word, always has existed. And there just always was this distinction between God the Word and God the Father. See, the Word was God every bit as much as the Father was God. The Word has always existed eternally, just like God the Father has existed eternally. And yet, it could also be said at the very same time that the Word was with God. See, John's still a monotheist, okay? There's, there's no... Uh, idea of polytheism in that statement. There's still one God, one divine essence, and yet there is this eternal distinction of persons within that one God, of God the Word and God the Father. And so John starts his gospel with this profound theological claim that God the Word has always existed. There has never been a time when the Word did not exist, just like there's never been a time when the Father did not exist. And yet, as the introduction of John's gospel goes on, we find out that there was a time when the word became something different. John 1.14, then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So this person has always existed. He's eternally existent God of all creation. And yet, at some point in time, in space and time in history, he has become something. Without being any less God than he was before, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's a profound, a profound theological statement. That word for dwelling there is, is the verb for tabernacling. It's the word that Scripture uses to talk about God making his presence known among his people. And the Old Testament described that tabernacle, the tent where God's presence would dwell. And that's what's going on here for John. Uh, when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, he was bringing God's presence to his people. By becoming flesh in this event, the word was making God's presence known to his people, just like in the past, God's presence could be found in a tent, like the tabernacle or in a building like the temple, will now, for the first time in the history of the created order, with the enfleshment of the word, God's presence became one of us and found in flesh. That's what John means when he says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I know that all this might sound kind of abstract and flighty. In formal theological terms, we, we call that the incarnation. Can you say that word with me? Incarnation. Okay, and if you think about that word, incarnation, it has two basic parts. It's got the prefix in, and then the Latin adjective carnatus, which is simply the Latin word for fleshly. I always like to think of carne asada, which is literally just roasted flesh. That's what you're eating uh, when, you're, when you're at a Mexican restaurant and eating carne asada. So the enfleshment of God, that's what the incarnation is. It's that utterly unique moment in human history when God became 
one of us and made his dwelling among us in a decisive new way. Keep tracking with me. I promise there's a point to all of this. Okay, so John 1.1, God, the word, has always existed. There's never been a time when he wasn't there. John 1.14, the word became flesh at a point in time and made his dwelling among us. And then John's introduction uh, closes with a verse, a claim, about what all of that means for us as we look at the life of Jesus in the story that's told over the rest of John's gospel. John 1.18, no one has seen God ever, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that one has made him known. What John is saying in that final statement from the introduction to his gospel is that if you want to know the God of all creation, if you want to get to know the God who made you, the God who's always existed, then ultimately you only have one option. You can only know the eternally existent God of all creation in this one way, and it's through his incarnation, the enfleshment of God the Word. Sure, you can look at God's handiwork and creation, and you can find out some things about him. You can read the scriptures and find out important truths about the character of God. But ultimately, if you want to know God in the fullest sense that he can be known, then according to the introduction of John's gospel, you only have one option. You better get to know Jesus, the Word who became flesh, because he makes God known to us in an utterly unique way. You know, sometimes uh, I'll be sitting on the couch and my daughter Evangeline will crawl into my lap. She's almost two years old and uh, she'll, she'll grab my nose and she'll try to stare deep into my nostrils. And then she'll, she'll uh, pry open my mouth and she'll gaze into the back of my throat. And then if I sit there long enough and just let her do it, of course she'll grab my ear and she'll try to really peer into my ear canal. And pretty much any hole in my head would be fair game for her with this. And, and it seems like what she's trying to do, she can't really talk too much yet, but I get the feeling what she's trying to do is get a look at my brain uh, when she's looking at all these different holes. But of course she can't see it, right? No one can see my brain. But if we were going to go down to the hospital and I kind of fought past some claustrophobia and I got into one of those tight little tubes and we did an MRI, we'd be able to get a very good look at my brain through that MRI. I know it's kind of a crude analogy, but that's what John is saying about God and Jesus in his introduction. If God is kind of like your brain, then Jesus is like the MRI. He gives us a glimpse of something we could not see anywhere else. Now, Jesus is more than an MRI, but I think the analogy at least holds. And that's how John starts his story of the life of Jesus. And he goes on for 21 chapters to tell us all about the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said, the person that Jesus was. But that's how it starts. Now, maybe that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that it's a controversial claim that John is making. It's a claim to exclusivity. There is only one way that you can know the God of all creation. That's not a claim that sits very well in our pluralistic society. All around us, we hear voices saying that they know who God is apart from this one person, the Word who became flesh. But as John starts his story of Jesus, that's the claim that he makes, that the things Jesus did, the person Jesus was, the, the words that Jesus said, they reveal to us the God of all creation in a way that nothing else does. Now I say all of this because tonight and with the rest of the week, our sermons every evening, we're going to be looking at a series of claims that Jesus makes for himself in John's gospel. And I just want to be really clear up front what it is that we're looking at, because I think it's incredible, it's amazing, and we could run right past it without even really thinking about it, what it is that we're doing when we look at these claims. When we look at the claims that Jesus made for himself in John's gospel, according to John, we are getting a glimpse of God that we couldn't find anywhere else, even within the pages of Scripture. 
As we look at the claims that Jesus made for himself in John's gospel, we are getting to look at who God is in a way that we could not find anywhere. This is a rare and utterly unique moment in the history of the created order where we are looking at the God who became one of us and dwelt in our midst. And so I'm really excited about these seven statements that we're going to be looking at every night during this week of Prelude to Revival. We're getting a special glimpse at the MRI. The seven statements are called the I Am statements in John's Gospel. And the reason they're called that is that each of the statements begins with that phrase, I Am. And then they end with different predicates that tell us something about who Jesus is in relation to us as humans. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. And naturally, our sermons this week are mostly going to focus on those different descriptions of Jesus. But before we get there, I just wanted us to think about the I am side of the equation a little bit too and understand what's there. See, when Jesus picks up on that language and says, I am. He is drawing on the way that God referred to his own name in the Old Testament. Back in the book of Exodus, if you went back to Exodus chapter 3, you might remember that story. It's the story of Moses and the burning bush. And there the Lord speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, and he tells Moses to go deliver uh, the people of uh, Israel out of slavery in Egypt and to establish them as a new nation. And Moses, in response to the Lord, asks, well, what should I tell them if they ask what God sent me? Uh, What should I tell them that your name is? And the Lord, in Exodus 3.14, he replies to Moses and says, I am who I am. Or it could be translated, I am the one who exists. Tell them that I am has sent you. And so that phrase, I am, is is the expression that God has chosen to refer to his own name in the Old Testament. It's a phrase that speaks to God's uh, eternal existence and absolute uh, uniqueness in that eternal existence. And then in John's Gospel, Jesus then picks up on that phrase, I am, and he applies it to himself. And he says things like, before Abraham was born, I am. And when Jesus does that, He is making a claim for himself that is very much the claim that John's introduction that we were just talking about makes for Jesus. That he is the one and only unique, eternally existent God of all creation who has made his dwelling among us. And so as we look at these seven I am statements in John's gospel, that little phrase is meant to tip off to us, hey, this is an especially clear look at the MRI. This is a clear glimpse of the God who has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. So as we look at these statements uh, here in John, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know how to relate to him, then you ought to pay some close attention to these I am sayings because you won't get a better glimpse of God than in these statements that Jesus makes. All right, let's pray, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about the first I am statement I am the bread of life. Okay, pray with me. Lord, what a miracle it is that the Word has become flesh and made His dwelling among us. We couldn't look upon you. No one has ever seen you. And yet through this miracle of the incarnation, this brief moment In the history of the created order, you became flesh. The Lord, the Word became flesh. May His dwelling among us. God, give us minds to grasp. Give us hearts to embrace the God that we encounter in John's Gospel this week. Amen. Well, I'm not proud to say this, but... In the 11 plus years of my marriage, I have watched more romantic comedies and romance dramas than any man would probably want to admit. I've seen all the classics, When Harry Met Sally, Two Weeks Notice, You've Got Mail, Hitch, 
those are pretty good movies. It's not embarrassing to admit to those. But then you've got the more, well, disreputable rom-coms, you know. Uh, all those Hallmark movies that never make it to a theater. Anything starring Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. TV shows like The Gilmore Girls. Duh, I'm sorry, Ashley. Those are the ones, as a guy, it hurts to acknowledge. Uh, you know, you watch those in the basement with the doors locked and the lights off, the blinds closed. You want to keep those a secret. But I've seen, I've seen most of what the genre has to offer. And one thing I've noticed in watching romantic comedies is, is with a lot of them, at some point in the story, there's going to be a breakup scene. Now, it doesn't happen with every romantic comedy, of course, because, I mean, that would be too predictable. But, uh, but with most, you know, there's a, a breakup scene that occurs at some point in the story, that awkward and intense moment when the guy and the girl look into each other's eyes and they have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation about their relationship. Many times they're screaming. A lot of times there are tears. Usually there's some confusion or surprise with one of the people. Most of the time, about halfway through, the sad string music starts to play. It's a breakup scene. We've all, we've all seen them. Well, if John's gospel has a breakup scene, the passage we're looking at tonight would be it, okay? John chapter 6, I'm serious, it's the breakup scene of John's gospel. It's the place where Jesus uh, parts ways with the people of Israel. John chapter 6 it's the passage where Jesus breaks up with, with uh, the crowds. And you can go ahead and turn over there if you like, John chapter 6. And I'm just going to make a few remarks about the context of the passage, okay? At this point in the story with Jesus, we are at a stage in, in the ministry and life of Jesus where he is very popular with the masses. Uh, he's gained this reputation at this point in the story for being a miracle worker, the crowds have seen him perform all kinds of healings. And so at this point in the story, wherever Jesus goes, the crowds want to follow him. And in John chapter 6, at the beginning there, the chapter, it's around the time of Passover, and the chapter starts with Jesus performing a miracle. And it's that famous feeding miracle where Jesus takes five loaves of bread, two fish, and he, he multiplies it into enough food to feed 5,000 people and then have 12 baskets of bread left over. And, and it's interesting, if you look at verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, you can see what the crowds were thinking uh, after Jesus performed that miracle. See, they were enamored by Jesus when they saw his power. They saw the things that Jesus was doing, and they fell hard for that guy. Look at verses 14 and 15. Look at how they react to the miracle that Jesus performed. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowds are so impressed with what Jesus has done that they are ready to start a revolution. They, they are coming to Jesus. They would be willing to form a militia and try to make Jesus a king. That's what the passage is saying here. Remember, it's the time of Passover, so these folks would have naturally been reflecting on, meditating about the way that God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and established their independence as a nation. And what's happening is, is they're looking, they're reflecting on that, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, here's the guy who's going to do that for us again. Here's the guy who's our new prophet like Moses. He's the one who's going to conquer the Romans and give us back our country. Jesus is going to make Israel great again. That's the mindset of the crowds here in this passage. They're ready to start a revolution and make Jesus their king. And in a sense, that seems like a, a pretty positive response to what Jesus is doing. But notice in verse 15, 15 how Jesus reacts to the enthusiasm of the crowds here. Verse 15, he gives them the slip. It says, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And as the passage goes on, if we were to keep reading, what you'd see is that after going to the mountain, Jesus will then cross the Lake of Galilee uh, by foot. It's a, it's a uh, miraculous scene uh, and, and ends up in the, in the village of Capernaum after this. So the crowds want to come and make Jesus their king, 
And Jesus takes off, climbs a mountain, and then crosses a lake by foot to get away from them. Okay? What the text is saying there is he's just not that into them. But, uh, but the crowds, they can't take a hint. And so they're going to pursue him and find him. And if you, you were to read down to verse 24, they find Jesus in the city of Capernaum. And so the rest of the chapter then from verse 25 onward is the story of the conversation that unfolds when the crowds and Jesus come face to face. So if John's gospel were a rom-com, chapter 6 of John's gospel and this conversation that's going to unfold here would be that moment when Jesus and the crowd have that awkward heart-to-heart conversation about their relationship. The crowds are really eager to be with Jesus, but as soon as you start reading, you can see Jesus and the crowds are not on the same page. And they're going to end up having this long, drawn-out conversation from verse 25 all the way through verse 65. And by the end of that conversation, they break up. Look at verse 66 here in the passage. After this, okay, Jesus has just finished this long conversation with the crowds. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Cue the sad string music. It's a breakup scene. And like most breakup scenes, this passage is painful. It's confrontational. Jesus has some very hard things to say to the crowds here in this passage. In fact, if you were to look at uh, verse uh, 60, it says exactly that. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That's what this text is all about. A very painful, hard conversation. And the crowds... They just don't want to hear it. It's a difficult text. And not only that, as you look at it, you can see this is a very long passage as well. It's filled with all kinds of difficult claims, challenging claims, hard images to interpret, and uh, it lasts for about 40 verses. Uh, So I'll just be honest, there is no way we could cover everything that's here in this passage in in one sermon. So rather than going verse by verse through the text and staying here until midnight, uh, I I have a bit more modest, just two goals for the rest of our time together. There are two things I want us to do, okay? First, I do want us to run through the outline of the passage and get an overview for how this story develops and try to get our bearings in the text, okay? Uh, We can't talk about all the little details. I'd be happy to converse with you after the sermon about some of the things you might see in there. Uh, But we can get a good feel, I think, for the main points in the passage and the way that the story develops. Then once we've got our bearings in the text, the second thing that I want us to do is cut right to the heart of the issue between Jesus and the crowds here. And I want us to look really closely and reflect upon the challenge that Jesus makes to these people, which really is the challenge that Jesus is making to each one of us here tonight. When Jesus says, I myself am the bread of life, He is making a challenging statement to these folks about their motives that lie behind all of their seemingly spiritual activity. So I want us to really reflect on that and do some soul-searching on that challenge, okay? So those are the two things we're going to do. Quick look at the outline and then the passage's challenge to us, okay? So let's start with the outline. The conversation is, uh, uh, in some ways, seems pretty complex, but I think we can break it into three main developments, okay? There are three divisions in this text that, that I think are pretty easy to remember, okay? First, you've got the call to wake up. Then you've got the appeal to make up. And then you've got the choice to break up, okay? I usually tend to stay away from corny alliteration and things like that, but I I just couldn't help myself when I I was uh, looking at this text. I think that's a fair summary of the way that the passage develops. The call to wake up, the appeal to make up, and then the choice to break up. Okay, so first in verses 25 through 34, you have this back and forth conversation where Jesus is issuing a call for the people to wake up, okay, to recognize that their motives in coming to him need a serious adjustment, and they need to wake up from their spiritual slumber. Uh, Look 
right at verse 26, as soon as the crowds come out to Jesus, Jesus confronts them about their motives in coming to him. Look at verse 26 with me here. Uh, Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. It's a call to wake up. Jesus is acknowledging that the people are coming to him. He says, okay, you're seeking me, but their motives are completely self-centered. They had their fill of the loaves and They just want to get what they want from Jesus. In other words, they are treating Jesus as a means to an end. He's just a convenient tool for them to get something else that they really want. And Jesus here in the passage, he's not willing to go along with that. He's not going to be treated in that way. And so he's he's telling them, uh, wake up, seek a different sort of thing whenever you come to me. And as the passage goes on, if, if we keep reading here, the selfishness, the self-absorbed spirituality of the crowds really comes through strongly in their interactions with Jesus. Uh, they, they have a certain sort of spirituality. They know the scriptures. They're coming to this man, and they're thinking in theological categories, but it's a self-absorbed spirituality where everything is really just all about them, and that comes out in the conversation. Keep reading in verse 28 here. Then they said to him, so Jesus has just told them, don't seek food that perishes, okay? Look for food that endures to eternal life. And then verse 28, they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Quoting there from Nehemiah 9, uh, verse 15 in that passage. I hope that you can see in reading between the lines there and recognize what's going on. These people are haggling with Jesus here in this text. Jesus had told them, in verse 27, you should be seeking this food that endures forever. And in response to that, they say, well, okay, that sounds good. Uh, name your price. What should we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, what can we do so that we have a claim upon that food? And Jesus, in verse 29, then responds, well, it's pretty simple. The, the work of God is simply to believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, he said, believe in me and you'll be satisfied. That seems like a pretty good offer that Jesus is making to these folks, but you see in verse 30 and 31 that they're not happy with it. They come back to him with the demand for a sign. And it's funny. See, the sign that they demand is that Jesus give them bread from heaven. Now think about what we were just talking about. That's kind of ironic because Jesus did just get done feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And you remember back in verse 14, these people at the time, they were pretty impressed by that miracle. But now apparently that wasn't enough. Probably when you go and study this passage, scholars say the reason the crowds are asking for something else here is that the bread in that miracle, it didn't literally come down from heaven. And so these people just dismiss what Jesus had already done. And they say, okay, uh, give us more. Give us something else. Well, and then, then we'll follow you. Then we'll believe. Okay, they're acting like sleazy insurance claims adjusters, I think, is what's going on here. They are looking at Jesus. They're looking at their scriptures. And they're clinging to this little technicality. And they're appealing to scripture really just to try to milk Jesus for all they can get from him. It's a self-absorbed spirituality that the way they read the Bible, the way they think about relating to Jesus, it's all about getting what they want, fulfilling their own desires. 
thinking in these fixed patterns of how they think God has to work, and it blinds them to the offer that Jesus is really making. See, they are coming to Jesus with a transaction mentality and just haggling with him to get everything they can out of him. Okay? Now, how many of you uh, have ever been in a situation where someone comes to you and they are so dead set on just getting what they want from you that if you were to tell them that you could give them something better, they, they probably couldn't even hear it. They couldn't listen to you. All of you who are parents ought to be nodding your heads. It happens all the time in parenting. Uh, sometimes I'll be in the kitchen and I'll be cooking dinner and my daughter Evangeline will come running into the kitchen and she'll just demand that she wants a piece of whatever raw vegetable is on the cutting board there in the kitchen. And of course, I'll just try to reason with her. I'll, I'll tell her, okay, well, it's going to taste a lot better if you let me cook it first. Or I'll offer her a snack that I know that she'll like. Or I say, well, I don't want you to spoil your appetite. None of that matters, okay? Because Evangeline comes in, she knows what she wants. She wants that onion, and she's not going to stop until she gets it. She has her agenda, and she's going to demand it. And of course, the second I give it to her, she'll take a bite and spit it out, and that's just our routine every night. Well, that's what's happening with Jesus and the crowds here in this passage. They are coming to Jesus with this fixed, narrow set of concerns, their own agenda. It's this self-absorbed spirituality where they know what they want from Jesus, and it blinds them from even being able to hear what he would have to say to them about that. And they're even willing to quote and manipulate Scripture to serve their own selfish desires. And if we were to read the, the rest of the verses in this section, Jesus just corrects their scriptural misinterpretation, okay? And so Jesus here is calling the crowds, wake up, realize that you need to change what it is that you're looking for whenever you come to me. That's the first section of the passage, the call to wake up. And that leads then into the next section of the passage from verses 35 all the way to 59 is Jesus' appeal to make up, okay? Where Jesus essentially puts his final offer on the table for the crowds. They've come with their own agenda. He's confronted them, challenged them to recognize what, what they're doing. And then he's going to now offer uh, them what they could have if they would just come to him with no agenda. If they would stop treating him as a means to an end and just come to him not for a transaction, but for a relationship. That's what Jesus wants to see from these people. Look at verse uh, 35 here. Uh, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The I there is emphatic. I myself am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is appealing to the crowds to come to him not as the means to some other end, not to try to press him into the service of their own self-centered agenda, but instead to come to him for the man himself. When Jesus says, I myself am the bread of life, he's saying, I want you to want me, not the things you can get from me. That bread I gave you, it only satisfied you until your next meal. Come to me for me, and you'll always be satisfied. Jesus is making an appeal for these people to drop their agendas, to drop the transaction mentality, and come to him for a relationship with the man himself. Now, this part of the passage has a lot going on in it. You can see it lasts from verse 35 all the way to verse 59, so a lot of ground is covered. There are uh, a couple of main points, though, I want to emphasize. It's the points that the passage emphasizes because it's the, the phrases that get repeated the most in this text, okay? The first phrase, there are two phrases that are repeated over and over and over in this passage. The first one is that phrase that we just read, I am the bread of life. Uh, something like that phrase gets repeated three times in this text. We already looked at verse 35. Now jump down to verse 48. It's that same phrase, I am the bread of life. And then jump down a few more verses to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live 
forever. So Jesus is hammering home this point that he's making that they need to come to him not for a transaction but for a relationship. He really wants them to see, hey, you can't treat me as a means to some other end. Just come to me come to me for the man that I am. And then the second uh, claim that Jesus really emphasizes in this passage is the promise of eternal security for those who would come to Jesus and believe in him, that he will raise such people up on the last day. Look at verses 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he sent me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then jump down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then down in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood... Those are vivid images for what it means to come to Jesus, believe in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So clearly, Jesus wants these people to know that if they would believe in him, then he will raise them up on the last day. It's this promise of eternal life. It's really another way of saying what he said in verse 35, that whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's eternal life, this deep and abiding satisfaction that comes through relationship with Jesus. You know, the the church father, Augustine, he has this book called Confessions. It's kind of like an autobiography or a, uh, a personal memoir of sorts. And in it, he describes all the fleeting pleasures that never really satisfied in his life. You know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. He, he talks some about all the projects of self-improvement that he went after. He explored all of these different philosophies. And then there's a section of the confessions where he turns to God in prayer and he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that's what this passage is talking about. And the appeal to make up that Jesus is making, he's saying, listen, you think that you can get all of these better things from me because you just want to manipulate me into a tool that can serve the selfish desires that you have. Those things They're never going to last. They're never going to satisfy. Come to me for a relationship. I myself am the bread of life. Find your satisfaction in me, and you will never run out. You will never go hungry. You will never be thirsty. You will find deep and abiding satisfaction. Your soul will find its rest when it rests in the one who made it. Okay? And that's the appeal that Jesus makes in the passage. But to get that satisfaction, to experience that deep and abiding relationship, this crowd is going to have to lay aside their own agenda. And that's really the essence of what Jesus has to say in all the verses that we didn't read here. Uh, Jesus is, is making the strong point that his agenda, it comes from God, not from anything that other people might press him to do. Uh, uh, Jesus is really wants to say that his, his will, his work, his mission, it's something that comes from God. In fact, God the Father, uh, Jesus mentions God the Father more than 10 times in this text. And so while the crowds want to come to Jesus and press him into the service of their own little pet projects, Jesus here is very concerned to say, hey, I already have a clear sense of the God-given agenda uh, that, that, that has been entrusted to me, and Jesus is not going to waver from that. So the crowds have a choice to make. Okay, Either they can come to Jesus for the man himself, they can set aside their own agendas, and come for a relationship that ultimately Jesus promises will lead to eternal life. Or they can turn their backs and walk away. But Jesus here is making it very clear he's not going to be manipulated and treated like a tool for these folks to get some other thing that they really want, okay? And that's the appeal for them to make up, to come to Jesus and believe in him, which leads us then to the third section of the passage, the choice to break up in verses 60 and following. It's, it's really interesting how this text 
wraps up in this chapter, we get this contrasting picture of two different responses to the challenge that Jesus makes here. On the one hand, most of the people whom Jesus is interacting with, they're too self-absorbed in their spirituality. They can't get outside of that, and they just turn their backs and walk away. Uh, That's what we see in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned their backs and no longer walked with him. It's a choice to break up. But then the text doesn't just stop there. Instead, it gives us a contrasting picture of a faithful response to Jesus' challenge. It's through the example of Peter. Uh, If you keep reading in verse 67, most of the disciples have just left, turned their backs on Jesus, walked away. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what Jesus was after all along. That's the response of someone who recognizes that any attempt to get something else out of life was just going to come to a dead end. To whom shall we go? That's the question of someone who can look at Jesus and recognize it's who he is, it's the things he says, that's what I want. That is the bread of my life. And Peter models that for us here in the passage. And so you and I, as we look at this text, we're confronted with that same choice that the crowds had to make there at the end of the passage. They were confronted, called to wake up. Jesus made this appeal to make up. And then they faced the choice, either to break up or not. So what will you do? Will you set your agenda aside? Will you ditch the self-centered, self-absorbed spirituality and come to Jesus, not for a transaction, but for a relationship? The text makes it clear that's the only terms that he's going to accept. And see, the terrifying thing about this passage, I was studying it, it just keep me up thinking about this text. It's terrifying that it paints a stark picture of people just like you and me. People who prayed, people who knew God's word, people who would have been in church anytime the doors were open. And yet Jesus sees through the facade and he confronts these Jesus groupies about all of their seemingly spiritual behavior that's really driven by ulterior motives or by some sort of hidden agenda. And at the end of the passage, they walk away. And so tonight, it's really all about a gut check. Why are you here? When you step through the doors of a church building, what is it that you're looking for? What is it you're looking for when you crack open the pages of a Bible or turn to God in prayer? What are you seeking when you come to Jesus? When you come to Jesus, you can't come as though he were a means to an end. You can't come with any sort of agenda. You have to come for the man himself. He's not a vending machine. He's not a talisman that you could manipulate into the service of your own pet projects. He's a person looking to love and be loved. And when Jesus says, I myself am the bread of life, he's saying, I want you to want me. Not anything else you could get, to, get from me. He's saying, all I have to offer is myself. So don't come to me looking to get something else, success, Power, influence, social affirmation, warm, fuzzy spiritual feelings. Jesus is never the means to some other end. He's got to be the end in himself. So do some soul searching. What is it that you're seeking? Why are you here tonight? It can be hard to evaluate a question like that. It can be hard to get a gauge on our own self-absorbed spirituality, in part because it's hard to see your own selfishness, and also because, quite frankly, we tend to be a lot more sophisticated in our attempts to manipulate Jesus 
than the kind of crass materialism of the crowds in this passage. So I was looking at the text, and I tried to come up with a list of some questions that I just jotted down here that might help you just get a gauge for your own motives in your spiritual life and the seemingly spiritual things that you do. So just do some soul-searching as I ask these questions, okay? Question number one. Are most of your prayers related to requests for your own well-being? Do you only talk to God when you want to get something from him? See, the crowds in the passage, they're rebuked by Jesus because they come to him simply because they ate their fill of the loaves that he had provided. Now, of course, in Scripture, it's clear we can and should be asking God for things that we need, just like you can and should ask your parents or your friends or your spouse for, for uh, things that you would enjoy. But if you think about it a little bit, if, if all you ever did was ask your parents for stuff, it wouldn't be long before they started to feel used in the relationship. And that's what Jesus is so upset about in this passage. Do you only talk to Jesus when you need to get something from him? Are most of your prayer requests related to your own well-being? Do a little bit of soul-searching. Number two, this one uh, is convicting for me. How do you use the Bible? Do you find that most of the time when you're quoting Scripture, it's in an attempt to justify your own convictions or your own behavior? Is the Bible largely something that has become a weapon for you to settle political debates on Facebook? See, the crowds in the passage, they come to Jesus and they're driven by this political agenda. They want him to make him their king because they think that's going to be in their own best interest. And then they use the scriptures in an attempt to justify their selfish desires. And Jesus, he won't go along with it. I see when I go online in my news feed, the same thing happening today with Jesus, with people, quite frankly, on both sides of the political spectrum. Listen, Scripture does speak to every aspect of our existence. It ought to inform our politics. But we have to be so careful about how we approach God's Word and who's really bringing the agenda. Are you coming to Scripture to listen to the voice of God and hear what he would say to you, maybe to be confronted? Or is scripture primarily something that you're using to justify your own convictions, your own behaviors? This one's tough. It's so easy to appeal to Jesus and manipulate God's word to suit our own selfish desires. Question number three. Do you ever find yourself setting conditions on your relationship with God. God, if you'll just give me a wife, if you'll just get me out of this problem, if you'll just show me what to do, then I'll believe, then I'll obey. See, that's what the crowds did here in this passage. Give us a sign, and then we'll believe. And there are people here tonight who have that same mentality. Give me a sign. Show me that you're real. Then I'll believe. Now, if you want a sign from Jesus, then look at the signs he's already provided. Read God's word. Look at the claims that Jesus makes. Evaluate the evidence. But don't expect Jesus to become a circus monkey who jumps on your command. He doesn't have to do the things you want to demand him to do. He doesn't play that game. That's what this text is talking about. Okay, question number four. Do you ever find yourself slipping into a transaction mentality? with God. In other words, are there times when you recognize that your obedience, it's really being driven by the desire to uh, secure and be confident about God's blessing in your life? You know, the crowds in this passage, they had a transaction mentality. They said, what should we do to be doing the works of God? And it was clear in that context, they were, they were thinking, okay, if we can just figure out the right things to do, well then, we'll have Jesus where we want him. We'll have a claim on him and we can get the things we want. And it's tricky because in the Bible, in general, in God's economy, there is this correlation between obedience and blessing. But it's also clear that our obedience, it never puts us in a place where we have a claim on God. And that's what Jesus is saying here 
in the text? Do you have a transaction mentality with God? That can be a dangerous thing. And then the last one, do you find it hard to be a public witness for Jesus? What do you do when times get hard, when your faith is inconvenient? How deep is your loyalty to Jesus? See, because if you're coming to Jesus with a self-absorbed spirituality, if it's really all about your own agenda, then if Jesus stops going along with that agenda, you probably won't have much of a reason to stick around. And that's what happened with the crowds in the passage, right? Jesus kind of put his foot down, said, you had your fill of the loaves, and I'm not going to go along with that anymore. He stopped going along with their agenda, and they walked away. So if you're finding in your life that you tend to have a pretty tough time maintaining a public witness, remaining faithful to Jesus whenever you're encountering situations where it's inconvenient, in the workplace or in a social setting, then that might be something to look at and dig deeper into. It might reflect something about the motives in your spirituality. It could be that your seemingly spiritual behavior is largely driven really by a desire to fulfill your own selfish agenda. How deep is your loyalty to Jesus? These are five questions for us to think about. When we come to Jesus, we have to come for the man himself. He won't be treated as a means to an end. He's not a needy, codependent enabler. Jesus demands to love and be loved. And if we can come to him for that relationship, if we can set aside the transaction mentality and just come to him for the person that he is, the beautiful thing in this text is that he holds forth this promise that we will be deeply and satisfied for all the time that we could ever want. We will never hunger again. We'll never thirst again. He is the bread of life. And if we would just come to him for who he is, we'll never hunger or thirst again. Let's pray. You have made us for yourself, O oh Lord. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God, this is a sobering text. I tremble even to preach it with its challenge for us to really do some soul searching and dig into the motives that really drive our seemingly spiritual activity, God. It doesn't feel good to be used in a relationship, and we're sorry, Lord, for the times when we do that to you. Forgive us for when we pray, when we pray long prayers just to be respected by those around us. When we come to church more to be seen by people than to meet with God. When we come to you with a transaction mentality, really just seeking to get what we want. Lord, we don't want to treat you as a means to an end. We want to come to Jesus for the man himself. For we know that in that we will find a lasting and abiding satisfaction. He is the bread of life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.